following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and, and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. All right, y'all. All right, like I was saying, we started last week. We, we've been pressing our way through this pastoral prayer um, that we see in verse 15 through 23. Carrie just read the whole thing for us. Um, and, and really, Ephesians chapter 1 in the Greek is basically two really long run-on sentences. So first, Paul gushes with this doxology, this praise for God, and then he turns and he, he gushes with a prayer for the people of God in the church of, of Ephesus. And his prayer, really, there's two things. He says, I thank God for you. We, we, we talked about this last week. I thank God for you. I thank God for what he has done for you, that you would be saved and come to faith. And then he says, I'm asking that you would know more. Now, I couldn't help but notice the parallels here between um, our, our, our year prayer, the prayer of 2021 that we set at the beginning of the year. Every year, we do this thing where we, um, we reflect on the previous year, sort of a year in review of what God has done in Sacred City Church, and then I cast vision for what's coming up in the next year. And with COVID, I didn't have a lot of clarity about where to go. And so what God gave me was this prayer from the book of Colossians that we had previously spent the year in. And it was four things, to know more, to do good, to joyfully endure, and to worship hard. We, we got these bookmarks to remember. Mine's pretty beat up at this point. Um, but it's just a constant reminder for us as a church to know more, do good, joyfully endure, and worship hard. And here, what do you know? Paul is praying that we would know more. Now, specifically... He's praying that, well, we see first he says we have hope, but even to have hope or to know of the hope that we have, it's connected, it's tethered to the awareness of God's power. And it's almost like Paul is saying, what you need most in life, the thing that you are most dependent upon, the thing that you need right now more than anything else is a big view of God's power. Now, 
I think this is where we tend to get things muddled up a little bit because if you were to ask me, if, you, if I were to ask you maybe in the middle of the week, the thing that you need, I need a better job. I need, I need my marriage to start clicking a, a little bit better. I need my kids. I mean, you just saw my kids. I need my kids to fall in line. I need more money. I need an easier life. I just need things to sort of mellow, smooth out. Mellow. Like that, that tends to be the thing that I need most is this. But Paul says, no, that's not true. What you need most in life in this moment right now and throughout the rest of your week is to know the vast power of Jesus Christ. To know this vast power and see how it intersects with your circumstances today. Now, why would the Apostle Paul go there? Why would he say that this is the thing that you need to know most? Why would he say you need to know the power of Jesus? And I think it's because we have a tendency to shrink God. We have a tendency to minimize the power of God. In fact, in 1953, J.B. Phillips, who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis' pastor, um, he wrote this book called Your God is Too Small. And it was both a critique of, of the secular worldview who, has, who have these really flawed views and understandings about who God is, but also to the church, the people of God, who know God as according to how he's been revealed in his word, but still have this tendency to minimize and shrink. And he says, the trouble with many of us today is that we have not found a God big enough for our modern needs. In varying degrees, we suffer from a limited idea of God. I think this is true of us, regardless of where you're at. Whether, whether you have all of the Sunday school answers, you've got all of the Bible trivia locked up in that dome of yours, or you know nothing about God and the Bible or anything, I think we all have this tendency to minimize God. I think it's this real life thing where this functional belief of in the, in the weeds of life, in the grind of life, does my, what I think I know about God line up with what my heart knows about God? And I think I know, at least in my, my case personally, that my view of God doesn't fully line up with what the Bible communicates. I have this tendency to shrink God down, to take general notions about God and to superimpose human limits upon him. Sometimes it's unintentional and sometimes it's intentional. I mean, for you, it might be one or the other, but, but here's what it sounds like. It's like, yeah, I know God's loving, but there's no way he can be that loving. I, I know God forgives my sin, but I just don't think he can forgive this sin that I did. I know that God's patient, but man, he's, he's got to be getting tired of me because every week I come in and I do the same confession, the same repentance. Like, when am I going to learn? Yeah, sure, God's powerful, right? The scriptures say he's got power and might, but there's no, he, there's no way he can be that powerful. See, we, we take the attributes of God that Scripture says God is rich in, and we put limits on it. Now, this has been a tendency for almost every person who's known God, right? Old Testament, New Testament, the church era, 
It's been happening all the time. In fact, uh, Martin Luther said to um, Erasmus at one point, because he was noticing this going on, that, that his view of God was shrinking, 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 and he told him, your thoughts of God are too human. Isn't that the case? We put limits on God. Our thoughts of God are too, hum- too human. The moment you find the end of God's attributes, you have shrunk, go- you have shrunk God. Right? The moment you say, he's, he, Scripture says he's rich in mercy, well, I think that his mercy's expired. Well, you, you've shrunk God. I think he's powerful. Scripture says he's powerful, but he can't do that. You've shrunk God. Now, here's the crazy thing. What you believe profoundly affects everything else you do in life. In fact, Scripture tells us from our hearts that the belief center of our lives, every other action, whether word or deed, spews out from that point. So listen, here's how it works. If you shrink God's power, if my belief of God is a small power, it has this ripple effect into my Christian life. It affects my hope and my prayer life. We, we see this with Paul. Like he's, he's, the reason why he's telling us about God's power is to remind us about the hope that we have. Now, if we think God has small power, we're not going to have a lot of hope. And if, if we think God has small power, then we're not going to, it's like, if I don't have hope, it's like, will God do it? Can he do it? Right? Will this, like, is there something beyond this moment right now? But then the prayer part of this is, if I don't know, then I'm not going to ask. If I don't know the power of God, I'm not going to ask him to do what only he can do. What about worship? Listen, if you think God is small in power, your affections for him are going to be small. Right? Your worship is going to be weak because you think God is weak. What about my own sanctification? I, I have this quote of John Piper that's stuck in my head. Somebody asked him after decades of pastoral ministry, they asked him, hey, like, what's, what's the one thing throughout your time in ministry that just tends to, like, kind of bring you to a point of frustration or despair? And his response was, it's the painfully slow process of my own sanctification. If you think God is small in power, you have this mentality of, I don't know if God can actually change me. I don't know if God can actually change my heart so that it looks more and more like Jesus' heart. And then that spills over an admission because we've got all kinds of friends and family, coworkers, neighbors who, who don't yet know Jesus. And if we have a small view of God and his power, we think to ourselves, well, there's no way that, that God can save them. They're too far gone. Now, which is crazy, because I know my sin, I think my sin is worse than anybody else who I'm on mission to. Like God, has, as we move deeper and deeper into the gospel, we have this greater awareness, not that I become more sinful, but my awareness of my sinfulness becomes bigger and bigger. And that's met by the grace of Jesus. See, if we think God is a wimp, then we're not going to live on mission. We're not going to be courageous in mission. And this shrunken version of God we see here, it negatively affects your life, your spiritual vitality, and other people. 
I think there are two, well, I, I started out the sermon thinking there's two reasons, but this morning as I was praying through the sermon, I think there's actually three reasons. So I think there's three reasons why we tend to shrink God. And the first way that we, we shrink God is that we actually, we live a life where we don't need the power of God. We live a life where I can manage on my own. I can make myself comfortable. I, I don't get pushed beyond my own limits. I, I just am in this sort of comfortable bubble where I can manage. And so I don't need, why would I need God's power if I can do that? Now, I think a perfect example of this, we were talking this in our pre-service prayer. Um, Dan up here, typically he's like, yeah, I, I feel most comfortable uh, back behind the drums, playing the background part. I can do the drum stuff. But this week, Trent and his family are out of town. He's like, I just, and literally, he said this, I feel inadequate. This isn't my wheelhouse. Right? This is an example of what it looks like to step out beyond your limits and rely on God's power. Now, this doesn't just apply to this, this stage sphere right here. This applies to mission. This applies to uh, your own sanctification, like your own personal holiness and piety, right? All of these things. If I don't need the power of God, if I'm living a life where I'm not dependent upon the power of God, I'm just gonna have a small version of God. Now, the second reason why I think we tend to shrink God is that we don't want a powerful God. Now, hear me out here. This idea of having an all-powerful God should scare you a little bit, right? There's a reason why when God manifests himself, makes himself visible to his people, one of the recurring things that he does is appears in fire. You see this at the burning bush with Moses. You see this out in the wilderness as the Israelites are tracking through. God moves as a pillar of fire. We see this up on Mount Sinai where God comes in lightning and fire, right? There's this danger about, there's something that's mesmerizing about fire. There's this attractive element about fire, but there's also this danger, you can't get too close. See, fire has this power. God has this kind of power. And you can't fit God into a box. And so that, that puts me out of the driver's seat. If God is all powerful, that means he has claim on my own life, which puts me out of control. Now, one of the reasons why we don't want God to be in control is because I want that. I want to take control. I want to be the master of my own ship, the captain of my own faith. What we want instead is a sidekick. We want, we want a God who kind of like pats us on the back and validates our, like, our bad decisions in life. Oh yeah, I feel God telling me this and that, you know, that's the go ahead from God. Like we want a God who's not gonna confront us. We want a God who's gonna just applaud us and kind of move us on the way that we wanna go. We want a God who can do my bidding. But God does not come as a sidekick, he comes as a king. Right, so what do we do? We get afraid of that, that that's scary. And so I want to invent for myself a more manageable God. Now the problem with this here, you can do that. You can invent yourself, your own God, who does what you want, who gives you, you know, the, the go ahead on whatever you wanna do. But there's going to be a point in your life where you actually need a powerful God. 
You're going to come to a point in your life where you face a, a crisis, a circumstance, a season of suffering where it's just beyond the ability, the capabilities of this false God that you've manufactured for yourself. And that God will eventually let you down. He's too flimsy. He can't stand up. He doesn't have the power to bear the weight of what's going on. Those are the first two reasons. The third reason here is that we just simply have finite minds, right? We are limited creatures. My mind is limited to what I know. I have a limited understanding. It's like a four-year-old. Like a four-year-old knows what a car does, right? It gets us from this part to next part. And they might be able to tell you, you do that with a steering wheel and push it on the gas pedal. But if you start asking the four-year-old about how a car works, they just don't know. They don't have the bandwidth to understand how the engine uh, moves into the drivetrain. I don't even know, guys. I'm, I'm just... I'm, I'm messing with you right now. I don't know. There's so much more to the mechanics of how this works. There's so much more. The same is with God. Like, we can know about God through creation. He reveals himself in a general sense. We can see, okay, God's this creator. He makes things beautiful. He's an artist. He must be, he must be wise or smart because the way things work seems to, like, be working out. When you think about it, it's crazy. And then scripture, we get to the scriptures and it tells us even more yet, right? It talks about the essence of God, his character, his works, what he's done, not just in creation, but throughout human history. And as we get this dump of information from creation, from scriptures, we're, we're trying to understand an infinite God with a finite mind. There's just simply limitations. So this is one of the reasons why we might have a smaller view of Jesus, a smaller view of God's power. We just are limited. Now, in order to know God more fully, which is what Paul wants for us, he's praying for this. Our capacity to know God, our, our minds must be expanded. Actually, he says the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. That's the vocabulary he used. That we have to have our hearts and our minds expanded. Now, this first happens in our conversion. Like, when you first come to faith, faith there's this illumination, this, this opening up of your eyes, of your heart, that helps you to see and trust Jesus for the very first time. But that is just a starting point. Right? We, we begin to see God as this holy and powerful and gracious God, but that's just a start because there's so much more to know. And if you remember from last week, we talked about to know God is not just a cognitive endeavor, it's not just something you do with your mind. There's this experiential thing. The two unite. My, my head and my heart have this, this intimate knowledge of God on a firsthand basis. Now, this is why Paul prays in verse 17 and 18 to have this spirit of wisdom and illumination that, that our, our finite minds, our hearts can be expanded so that the knowledge of God can be poured into them through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's asking that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so we could see this big God fully revealed right before our eyes, and God is pleased to do this. He gives us the Holy Spirit to do this, to expand, to illuminate. God is pleased when we want to know him more. Now, this applies to every attribute of God. He's inviting us to know him more. Now, in, in chapter two, where we're gonna move into here in the next week, Paul's like, listen, I want you to know the riches of God's grace and his kindness to you. But here in, in chapter one, as he brings it to a close, the first thing that he wants us to know is the immeasurable greatness of God's power. 
And there's four things that I want to highlight to help emphasize this, that the Spirit would use this moment right now to expand our hearts and our minds, and the Spirit would fill this up. Four things to help you see the strength of God's power, the scope of God's power, the stamina of God's power, and the stewardship of God's power. Now listen, I know what you're thinking. There's four S's there, Sam. You're sounding pretty Baptist for being a guy that just baptized your kids. So we got four S's. I get an extra gold star today. Trying to help you remember here. Paul emphasizes this idea of God's power. He's trying to show us the strength of God's power. He says, he prays this, he's like, that you'd have the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, and he goes on, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? So check this out. He says, I want you to know the riches of his, uh, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. This is juicy language in verse 19. If we go back to the Greek here and, and sort of unpack what this means, we see the word immeasurable. The, the, the Greek word, and I'm not an expert in Greek, I'm going to pronounce it like I, I'm pretending like I know how to say this, I don't. It's hyperbolo. It's where we get the word hyper in our English language, right? Super, beyond, it, it's extravagant. So he, here he says this, this super greatness. Then he says great is the, where we get the, uh, the, the Greek word is megatos. I'm getting pretty good at this. It's, it's where we get the word mega, like super big, inflated, right, in a good way. And then the word power, the Greek word here is dynamos, right? It's where we get the word dynamite, right, this explosive power. And then we get to the word might, which is kredos, which is where we find the word strength. And so it's like Paul is saying God's super mega blasting strength. It's like my, my four-year-old It's like, hey, are you done with your dinner? I'm super done with my dinner. Okay, I thought you just, you just got an empty plate. It's like, no, Paul is like, he's using all of these adjectives to help us see just how strong, how powerful God is. Yet somehow all of these adjectives insufficiently describes the power of God. It's just the tip of the iceberg. What Paul is trying to get us to see that there is no limits to the strength of God's power. He's, un, he's an unstoppable force. There's nothing he can't do. Now, it's hard for us to really wrap our minds around this, right? This is, again, the finite mind's an infinite reality. It's hard to do this because God is so much unlike us. We have a lot that we cannot do physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. Like, we just have limits, as much as I want to, I can walk up to a barbell. I cannot lift up 500 pounds. I have a li I can't do that. I, I, there's an end to my power. Whether it's physical, whatever, whatever avenue it is, in every turn of life, it seems like we run into one of these limits. Right? You're going through just like an emotional hardship. You're going through a time, a season of just despair and anguish. Right? Maybe you're, you're wrestling with some depression. You just feel, I can't do this. You find you've reached the end of yourself. And whatever it is, it, it pops up. These things just have a way of showing up in our lives. Now, death is the ultimate limit. Death is the ultimate, nope, you're done. That's it, boom, you die, you're done, that's it. 
He says, no, you can't go on. You can't even breathe any longer. You're done. That's your limit. But here God shows, Paul tells us in verse 20, that God flexes on death in the strength and power of his might by raising Jesus from the dead. So Jesus, who is crucified on a cross by the hands of sinners, God looks at him, he validates him, he raises him from the dead in power, and then he goes on and he seats him at his right hand. This is what verse 20 is all about. This immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated with him at the right hand in the heavenly places. See, God shows us, like the, the one thing that we can't get past, God says, no problem, watch this. Now, not only does God work his power, like in the past tense, this, this has happened, this is historical thing that has happened, but then we see God share his power with Jesus where he's exalted. It says us that, that Jesus was raised from the dead and then seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. Now, the right hand of God, this is something that, a motif that comes over and over and over through the Psalms. The right hand is a place of honor. And so when, when Paul is saying here, Jesus is seated at God's right hand, God only has one right hand. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in a place of honor and power, ruling and reigning, right now enthroned over the cosmos. Now, this is what, this is what Philippians says. Philippians uh, chapter 2, Paul is working with the same thing. He says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So here we see Jesus now having this power. In fact, this is part of the, the promise that, God, that Jesus gives in the Great Commission. Go there. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Make disciples. See, Jesus is now sharing in God's power, ruling and reigning in the heavenlies over the, well, over what? That's the next question. What exactly is Jesus ruling over? What's underneath God's power? Well, here Paul shows us in verse 21 and 22 the scope of Jesus' power. Take a look at this. It says, um, he, he raised him, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. So here we see over all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, every name that is named. Now this is, encapsulates every sphere of influence that you can possibly think of. Social, political, world powers, spiritual powers. There is not a single power, a single force, a single persona in the cosmos that Jesus isn't over. Now this is crazy because you can See, okay, it makes sense that Jesus would be over the angels who are worshiping God. They're responding to his power, his lordship. But this even applies to every single power, every single force, every single name that runs opposed to goodness, beauty, and truth. Whether human institutions or spiritual powers in the world, there's not a single thing in the cosmos that is beyond the scope of Jesus' power. Huge, huge scope. 
Now, the question is, when is this going to take place? And how long will it last? It gets into the question of stamina. Can this last? If Jesus is ruling and reigning, can this last? When does it take effect? Well, verse 21, that Jesus says he's seated right now. He's seated in power right now in this age and in the coming age. Now, where we have strength that we can exert, we will eventually fatigue. Like, you can't keep running on and on and on and on forever. Like, I can't keep lifting the same amount of weight the whole day long. My body is going to break down. I'm going to run out of stamina at some point. But Jesus here, he says that he has crazy stamina, that right now he's ruling and reigning, and it's going to last into the new heavens, new earth, in this age and the age to come. Now, the coming age, is, it's, kinda, it's easy to wrap our mind around this, because if we know anything about Scripture, like, the inheritance that, that, we're, that Paul's talking about here is, is that heaven and earth united together as one. Where earth and heaven, the spiritual, the physical, come together underneath the lordship of Jesus. Everything acknowledge him, acknowledges him as his lord and king, right? And it, it exists in this sort of blissful, peaceful, shalom existence. That's what the coming age looks like, right? When, when heaven and earth are united in the new heavens and earth. In fact, I think I have this slide, that, that, the third slide here, Sean, sort of gives you what this looks like. Just kidding. I don't have it. Nope, I don't. We'll get to it later. So I think, okay, you think of the new heavens, new earth, this one day off in the future where everything will respond, right? Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. That, that's pretty easy to kind of imagine. But, but what about right now? What about in this age? How, how could it be that Jesus is seated in power right now, yet there's so much in this world that runs contrary to what Jesus aims to do with this world? Now, we have to see here, although these powers that Jesus is above are underneath Jesus, they are still at work right now. And in fact, we'll get into this later on in the book of Ephesians. We talked about the power of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of the age. These things are still at work, but they are beneath, they're subject to the power of Jesus. Now, when we're on this side of eternity, when we're, when we're here in sort of the, the in-between of these two worlds, of, of, the, of the old age that's passing away, the new age that's going to come, we have these encounters with other powers that run against Jesus. So like, for example, the, the power of hate sometimes seems like it, like it can outwork the power of love. Like we saw that, we saw that in our last election cycle people lobbing bombs at each other, like just constantly tearing each other down. Like the power of hate sometimes seems to overwhelm the power of love. Even think of this, the power of envy that you feel in your life, in your heart, seems stronger than the power of contentment. The power of sorrow seems to outweigh the power of joy. Like, there's times where we feel that we brush up against that, or even this, the power of sin seems stronger than the power of the Spirit at work in my life to lead me out of temptation. And so every time these things pop up, we might be tempted to think, just because we see them, just because we're experiencing them, just because we have this run-in with them, that Jesus is failing, 
That Jesus, yeah, if he's ruling and reigning right now, he's doing kind of a poor job of it. Because I keep running into all of this brokenness, all this sin, all this stuff in this world. No, I need you to know this. For Jesus to be in power right now does not mean he's micromanaging. Jesus is not micromanaging the cosmos. This is not some sort of determinist world. Everything's pre-programmed. Everything's working out exactly how Jesus wants it to work out. Like, he's not predestining every little mill decision that we make. We're not just cogs in the machine. See, that's what weak power does. Weak power has to micromanage. Weak power says, listen, I have to make sure ABC gets done now so that XYZ will happen later. That's weak power. I have to flex right now to get what I need later. Now, if Jesus were micromanaging the cosmos, this world that we're in right now, he wouldn't have any credibility. Because there is so much that flares up, so much brokenness. We could say, well, he must not be as strong or as powerful as I thought he was. Because otherwise he could keep the sin, the brokenness compressed. But here's the deal. If you are going to assess Jesus' power on a moment-by-moment basis, you are living short-sightedly. There's a story that Jonathan Edwards tells um, uh, he used to climb up on Mount Tom, which I think is just a super lame name for a mountain. Climb up to Mount Tom, um, make this trek, uh, and, and it overlooked the Connecticut River. Um, and as he would make his way up this mount, he, he would stop at various outlook points. Now, he knows, okay, the Connecticut River is going to end up in the ocean. Like, it's going to make its way to where it needs to go. But at these various outlook points, he noticed that, that the river didn't seem to be going the direction that it needed to be going. So at some points, the river went north. At some points, the river went inland. And he is looking out at these very, very, you know, the, these outlook points, these small pieces where the, the trees and the mountain ridges are sort of obstructing the whole view of this river. And he sees, look, this doesn't seem to be going right. Like, like, what's going on here? This isn't going in the right direction. Now, there are some times in our lives where that's what life feels like. My life doesn't seem to be trending up and to the right like I want it to be. Well, is that right? Up and to the For you guys. It doesn't seem to be going the right direction. And, and this especially it gets exposed in the midst of hardship, of crisis. You're in the midst of a broken relationship trying to repair and recoup some of that in the midst of failure. Like you, you, dealing with the sense of being hurt, right? In those times, it doesn't feel like the river's moving in the right direction. And in frustration, like you can turn to Jesus and say, listen, Jesus, if this is what you're going to do, if this is how you exercise your power, I'm out. I want to do it my own. I, w- I want to take over. I'm, let me move over. Let me drive. And guess what? Now you're micromanaging. You're taking whatever weak power you think you have, which is actually a lot smaller than what you think, and trying to exert that to get your desired outcome. And what eventually happen is you'll end up tanking your life. If we're looking at these, at these outlooks in our life, these moment-by-moment basis of God working his power, it looks like the river's going the wrong direction. We just don't have a big enough view of God's power. See, Jesus doesn't need to micromanage because he 
doesn't need us and our decisions to accomplish his will. He doesn't need these every little detail to go the exact right way because he is so powerful that he can take the setbacks, the crooks in the river of our life, and he uses them. He takes those twists and turns, what was meant for evil, what was meant to set us back, what was meant to, to delay us from entering into this flourishing God uses, and he gets us where we needed to go. Now, this is what Jonathan Edwards realized when he got up to the top of Mount Tom. He looked out, and he could finally see the entirety of the river. He saw that all those little crooks and bends, they're just momentary detours because the river was still going to go where it needed to go. Now, this is the reality. This is what the vision that we have here when we see this mighty and powerful Jesus. We're going to see that he's going to see everything through, the, to, everything through to the end for us. The things that were meant to undermine his power end up proving his power. Now, one of the stories in Scripture that proves this, that, that gives us a picture of this the most, is the story of Joseph uh, towards the end of, of Genesis. Right? All kinds of bad things, like his brother sold him into slavery, he gets arrested a couple times, he gets slighted, like a lot of bad stuff happens in Joseph's life. And he comes to the end of his life, and he's looking his brothers in the face, the very people who sold him into slavery. And he says to them, what you intended for evil, God meant for my good. How in the world could Joseph say, hey, I went all through, I went through hell and back, but it was for my good. How could he? He had a big view of God's power. He saw that in every crook, every turn, every twist in the river, God was still working. His power was still in effect. See, a Christian is somebody who can go through the most miserable experiences of life on this side of eternity and still say, what was meant for evil, God intended for good. Now, this gets me into the fourth point here of, of the stewardship of God's power. And what I mean by this is, how is God's power used? Now, God isn't a steward of power. God has power in himself. But the question is, how does God deploy his power? Well, the answer here is that God uses it for his people. He uses it for our good, it's not used against us in judgment. It's used for us in redemption. See, there, this is part of the frightfulness of God, that if God really is power, then, then he could come down like a hammer on me anytime. Right? He could execute that power, and, and it could be donezo for me. But in the gospel, when I see Jesus, what I see is the power of God not used against me, but for me. Not for my judgment, but for my redemption. And we see this where he says that you may know the hope, we know the glorious power toward us who believe. See, it's working toward us. Jesus shows us his power. Now, this is, this, this is the biggest power move that you could see. It's one thing, like, true power has the ability to take power and set it down. Like, fake power, weak power has to cling on to it and hold on to it for dear life. Because if that's stripped away, then what am I? Well, Jesus takes his power and he sets it down. Philippians, at the beginning of chapter 2, he talks about, like, he emptied himself. And he took on the role of a servant, even to the point of death. And what did he do? He went and he died for the weak and the needy. He, he took off his power so that we might experience it for ourselves that we might be raised from the dead with him. See, this is what it means for the power of God at work toward us, for us, so that we could believe in him. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but 
It takes the same supernatural resurrecting power that raised Christ from the dead to give us hearts that will believe that Christ was raised from the dead. It takes just as much power for God to revive a broken, sinful, hell-bent heart to, to receive the grace that God has for us in Christ. He deploys that power so that we might believe in him. But God's stewardship of his power doesn't end there. He actually gives us Christ himself. Verse 23 says, he put, uh, 22, and he put all things under his feet, that's Jesus, and gave Jesus as the head over all things to the church. So he's saying, here, I'm giving Jesus, who's the head over all things, all power to the church. Who is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, church, we aren't just given this power at one point in our life to bring us into a knowledge of God. This power of God is available for us right now. See, right now we're situated in this already but not yet. The, the, the first age, the present age is passing away. And it'll perish, it'll fade away when Jesus comes back in glory and power with the trumpet sound, right? Then it's over. This age will fade away, but the new age has already been started in the resurrection of Jesus. I've got this right here. Put it up there, Sean, if you're back there. I think I got this one. Number two. Golly darn. Ha! See, this is what, like right now we're in this present age. And when Jesus comes back on the clouds of glory, it's going to pass away. But, but the coming age is the resurrection age, this new life, this new beginning, the new heavens, new earth. It's already underway, but right now we're sandwiched on the in-between, the already but not yet. And it's in the midst of this already but not yet that God's power is available to us right now, church. God deploys his power for us. Peter O'Brien, who commentates on, on the book of Ephesians, your great commentary, says, God has given Christ as head over all things for the church. His supremacy over the cosmos is seen to be for the benefit of his people. See, Jesus uses his power, not just a one-time power, but power for all time for our benefit. Who wouldn't want to come beneath a power like that? A power that's deployed for my best interests. A power that's going to, to well, it's super strong, but will last not just in this age, but in the age to come. There's no expiration. To, who wouldn't want to come under a power like that? Who works everything out for your good? Who does what you can't do in and of yourself? See, that's the reality that just as sinners, we're in a weak and vulnerable spot. We need a power. And Jesus has made himself available to us, given us full access, given over to the church. I know that I want to submit to a power like that. I want to give my life to a power like that. Because here's the reality you are made to flourish. And human flourishing does not take place until you place yourself beneath the power of God. Because the power of God is meant for your good. The more I see God's power in my life, the more that I see God's power demonstrated in the life of the church. This is why being part of a community, being part of a missional community is so important to be able to see. Maybe God's not, I don't feel God working in my life, but I see that he's working in somebody else's life. When I see that, that fuels my worship, that, that fuels my prayer. 
When I see the power of God, I have more hope because I know that even the crooks in the river, the bends, the twists, they are happening. They're taking place. God is going to use them for my good. The more I see God's power, the more empowered I feel. Because that's what it is right now, church. We are empowered people, that we have the power of Christ who helps us fight our sin, put it to death, and live into the newness of life that he gives us. I feel empowered to put my sin to death. I feel empowered to step into Christ's likeness by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. The more I see the power of God, the more hope I have when I see my friends and family members, my neighbors, my co well, I don't have coworkers on the church, but the people that I love come to saving faith in Jesus because Jesus can use his power to bring them back from the dead. The more I see God's power and how it's for me, the more I long to obey and trust Jesus because it's for my benefit. See, this is why Paul prays that you would know the power, the glorious might of God, that you would see it and surrender to it. Because there's really just two ways of going about this life. You can fight against and rebel against the power of God or he can yield to it. One of those ways does not turn out great. The other way opens up to the path of flourishing. It might be hard now. It might be the narrow path. Jesus says it's a narrow path, but it opens up wide to the path of flourishing. If we see the power of God, it changes all of these things. It has that ripple effect into our lives that we become more joyful. We live with a greater zeal for mission. My prayer life expands and explodes. And I have this general resoluteness in my life that no matter what I face, no matter what trials or tragedy, God is working all things out for my good. See, that's the refrain of the Christian. The power of God is so powerful, so good, so trustworthy that everything that in this moment, this narrow view that I have, when I get the big view, when I see God's power, man, God unleashes his goodness towards us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you the fact that you are powerful, that we are not. We are empty, we are void, we're weak, and whatever power we think we might have, it's just insignificant for what we need to get through this life and into eternity with you. And so I thank you that you've showed up in, in power in Christ and how power has taken on the form of humility, that Jesus didn't, didn't count power as something to be grasped, but he laid it down. And God, it's in your power you raised him from the dead, reassigned power over all things to him. So now we see Jesus right now. You are ruling and reigning over the entire cosmos, past, present, and future. It's all yours. And we want to acknowledge that. We want to live into that. We ask that your spirit would help us, that give us the faith, that the resurrecting power that's required to raise Christ from the dead would resurrect our cold hearts, our hearts of unbelief, and give us trust in you, that we may believe and see your goodness toward us through your power. We have the opportunity right now to come to the Lord's table and to see this, this reminder, to be reminded that Christ's body was broken, his blood was shed for us. He did what we could not do so we could have access. And so the promise is, is even of this, that in power, Christ, if, if we uh, cling to Jesus, remain faithful to, in Jesus, that his power becomes our power, that we will reign with him in the new heavens, new earth. God, we thank you for what you're doing. We pray that you would have your way with us, be glorified in us. Show your power and might. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.